you likely know that compared to the United States, Canadian gun laws are really strict. You probably also know that guns are still a problem here on city streets, especially in Toronto. If it's so hard to get a gun in Canada, where do all those guns come from? Yes, indeed, they come from the United States, that's obvious. But where do they really come from in the States? You see, it's one thing to say the guns cross the border illegally. Yes, of course they do. But where are they purchased? Who's buying them? Who's moving them? How do these guns actually, physically, cross the border? And why do border services and the police catch so few of them as they enter the country? After discovering just how easy it is to get your hands on a gun in Toronto, one reporter wanted to figure out how that became so easy and who's responsible for it and if there's anything that could actually stop the flow. So she went into a jail and she started asking questions. And that's how the gun chase began. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Christina Howeran is a reporter for City News. Her latest project is an in-depth documentary called The Gun Chase, which airs as part of the Veracity series, Tuesday night on City News. Hello, Christina. Hi, Jordan. Why don't you start, before we get into uh, just how deep you got into this, where did the idea of this project and how you approached it come from? Well, we know that gun violence in urban communities has been an ongoing issue in Canada for, for several years. And I also knew that we had some of the strictest gun laws in the Western world. So I really couldn't reconcile the idea of we have so many shootings, and yet it's very difficult for people to actually get a gun. So I started looking into it, and I realized that um, through Toronto Police's work and through the work that's being done through um, some organizations, uh, law enforcement organizations across the country, that most of the guns used in crimes are actually coming from the border. So I really set out to find people, to find, you know, a gangster or a former gangster, to find somebody that was involved in the smuggling trade, to just really learn how it worked. And uh, once I started speaking to some of these people, I realized this is a much bigger story than we are able to fully cover in, you know, a three-minute or two-minute long news piece. So that's how this all started. I'm going to get you to describe uh, the trip you went on uh, going down this rabbit hole. But but first, how did you set out, you know, once you kind of figure out, okay, I want to talk to these people, I want to find out exactly how the guns get here, um, what do you do first? So I, I'm not typically a crime reporter, which is one of the ironies about this. So it's not like I have these fantastic connections, you know, in different police forces, um, but I do do a lot of covering of the correctional institution in jails. So I started reaching out to people who I knew had connections to this underworld, uh, to the criminal under element of society. And I asked them if they knew anybody that may have potentially been involved in. And, you know, it was a lot of phone calls. And then I was very fortunate that uh, a good source of mine hooked me up with a man that I'll call the captain. And uh, the captain was a gun smuggler for several years. And, you know, over a series of 
you know, this is pre-COVID, but meeting him for dinner at Earl's and, uh, you know, going out for coffee at Tim Hortons, I, I gained his trust and he agreed to show us how it was done um, and to explain his whole process. Before we talk about how it's done, uh, maybe for people who live elsewhere in Canada, give me a sense uh, over the last few years of the scope of the gun violence problem in Toronto. It's it's more than doubled over the past couple of years. So if we look back to 2010, you know, I believe there were about 200 shootings and 70 people were unfortunately injured or, or killed because of these shootings. You fast forward a decade and the number of shootings is approaching 500 per year. Uh, the people that are being hurt or killed is approaching 200. Um, so it's been a significant growth over the past 10 years. And in fact, over the past five years in Toronto alone, there's been more than 400 shootings every year. And that's just Toronto. So that really quite easily spills into all of the suburbs that surround it. So you have, you know, like the Hamilton and the Brampton and Mississauga, the Oakville, the Oshawa. And it really expands from there. It, it's impacted whole communities that live in fear because that they know that the housing complex where they reside or just by virtue of postal code, that they are more likely to, to be collateral damage in a gunfight. How often in these shootings uh, are police actually able to track down where the gun came from? So police forces themselves don't necessarily track the gun. If police forces all across Ontario and, and across Canada really submit them to specific law enforcement agencies. So in Ontario, it's this little known group that works out of the Solicitor General's office called Criminal Intelligence Services Ontario. And I had never heard of this group, but I do so much work with the Solicitor General, but they don't talk to the media. And if a gun is submitted to them, they are able to more often than not track the gun right back to its point of origin uh, in terms of purchasing, even if it is international. If it's anywhere in, in you know the US, they can often get it right back to the store. But also, even if the serial numbers on, that are on the gun have been etched off and scratched off, they can actually recreate those numbers. And that helps them track the gun. So even if you think that you've got all those serial numbers all burned off and scratched off and drilled off, the cops can find them. The cops can recreate them in more cases than you would imagine. And so we know from that that most of these guns are coming from the United States, right? We do. So in Toronto alone, about 85% of handguns used in criminal events uh, do trace back to the, to the U.S., uh, all across Ontario, and that includes, you know, places like Ottawa and, and Windsor and, and Thunder Bay, everywhere. It's It ranges in the 70 to 85 percent, given just on any given year. So let's say there's a, a gun in the United States at uh, a pawn shop, a gun store. I don't know. Where does it start? Well, it actually starts in a lot of different places. So straw purchases are people that have gun licenses and that sell them to people who do not. And that's a bit of a problem in Canada, but it is a huge problem when it comes to smuggling. And some states, for example, Alabama, you really just need a driver's license to buy a gun. And that's at a gun shop, that's at a pawn store, that's at a gun show, because there are a lot of gun shows, particularly in the southern states. And so in the case of the captain, what they would do, or what he and his crew would do, is they would find people in the states, um, 
sometimes it's easy as going to a university or college campus and saying, hey guys, here's 200 bucks. You guys all go get your, go buy a gun. And when you give it to us, we'll give you another 200 bucks for your pocket. So you have all of these people that are like, I'll buy a gun and get, you know, $200 for nothing. And they'll buy guns, sell it back to part of this smuggling operation. And the smugglers then will take a car that is destined for Canada and they will take it apart. They will hide the guns in the door panels, in, in the, the air vents. Uh, they'll hide them in the wheel uh, over top of the tires and and even in the hood. Did you watch them do that? Yes. So as part of this documentary, the captain, uh, he is a former smuggler. He took apart a, a vehicle for us and he showed us just how easy it was for him to hide things in the door panels. These are things that I had no idea you could even do. And in his case, when he was sending mules down to the States to go hand over drugs that they didn't know they were handing over, um, and then to come back in this in the vehicle filled with guns that they didn't know was filled with guns, he would take apart the panels on rental cars. And they would do it in such a way that you, he could turn back in that rental car eight days or seven days later or however long this journey was. And they would have no idea that whatever vehicle they rented from whatever rental place was actually being used to smuggle guns and out of the country or drugs out of the country and guns into the country. Because he could put it back together so well that you wouldn't know that the entire door panels had been removed. So what happens now when they have um, a car in the United States that's been taken apart and loaded up with these guns? So in in many cases, it's the, the individual will drive it back to the border. There's a certain sort of person that the smugglers look for. In the case of the, the captain who is with whom we spoke, uh, he would look for older people. He would look for pensioners. He would look for people who may have family already in the States. People that were hard up on money that could use a couple thousand dollars and a free trip to to drive down to Florida and they'd get to visit friends. And they, they would think a lot of times that they were just bringing back money that, you know, the smuggler, the captain did not want to declare for taxes. So they knew there was something fishy, but they didn't know how fishy and how nefarious this little drive really was. So he'd look for pensioners. He'd look for people that may have done a lot of cross-border shopping so that they didn't raise eyebrows when they crossed over the border. They knew the drill and they weren't surprised if they said, do you have anything to declare and things like that. And, you know, in my head and the way he's, he's described it is oftentimes it's a little old lady going down to visit her friend who has a trailer out in uh, Florida for the summer and she's going down for a week and uh, she's got a free rental car and, She's coming back and she doesn't know that the side panels have all been filled up with guns and ammo. They'll cross the border. They'll meet up with the captain. The captain will thank them for their service, so to speak. And uh, he'll take apart the car. And he he acted almost like a middleman. He would sell it to the people that would sell it to people on the street. So there'd be one big purchaser and they would buy the 12 or 15 guns that he got back into the country. They'd sell them out onto the street. And what's that market like, both in terms of price um, and in terms of type? You mentioned handguns. Is it just handguns? It is predominantly handguns. Handguns are much smaller. They're easier to conceal. Uh, they're the preferred weapon of choice for many people that are in gangs because they are easy to conceal, in part at least. And um, 
you could buy a handgun at a Florida gun show for $199 and you can sell it on the streets of Toronto, Ottawa, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver for $5,000. Wow. So it's very, it's a very lucrative market. How many people like the captain uh, are doing this now? How prevalent is this? It is very prevalent. Uh, It's impossible to know how many people are doing it because if the police knew exactly who was doing it, they would all be behind bars. Right. Uh, The captain was actually caught um, in an international sting because the police were aware of what was happening in the southern states and they were following somebody along in his operation. And that's, he ended up being caught in a, in a suburb of Toronto with local police, OPP, and ATF was even involved. If there's so many people doing this, um, why aren't more guns caught at the border? Why aren't I reading stories, uh, or at least more stories, about guns being seized at the border? Like, if this is something that's kind of common knowledge, that this is how our guns get here, uh, how does so many still slip through? Because the CBSA doesn't have the resources to actually check every single vehicle crossing the border. Uh, one of the in, one of the detectives I spoke with for this film, he explained that in his view, and he works with the CBSA, anytime the CBSA has good intelligence, they are 100% successful. But they're not necessarily looking for me if, if I was to be a gun smuggler, which I, I would never be. But if I was going down as a mule, you know, I'm an employed person, I don't have a criminal record. I'm not, you know, on any level of drugs. I'm driving a normal rental vehicle. I'm going to Florida. I've got suitcases. You know, everything looks like I'm actually going where I say I'm going. So they can't, if they can't stop every vehicle and they can't make every vehicle go through an x-ray, these guns are going to continue to come through. And And they come through other ways too. I mean, our former gangster that spoke with us, who's now helping people get out of organized crime, like actually exit gangs and other criminal organizations. He says in the past, when he was doing this 20, 25 years ago, that there are parts of the border, and it, and it still stands, there are parts of the border that are completely undefended. So, and unmanned. So you have people that can quite literally throw a bag of guns over on the other side of the border. But the vehicle transfer is really the main way. And if CBSA doesn't have more officers, doesn't have more x-ray screens, doesn't have more booths so that you're not just holding up traffic, there's no way to stop every gun. What surprised you the most um, when you started this documentary? You got pretty deep into this. I did. What surprised me was how easy it is to get a gun in Toronto. Um, you can rent a gun right now in many urban centers for $80 a night. And no questions are asked. You simply go rent a gun from the guy in the corner and you can do whatever you want with it. Just make sure you bring it back. I learned that there are guns that are available for rent um, in Ottawa and Toronto. I've heard this, that um, you pay 80 bucks, but every bullet you fire costs you 20. So it becomes one of those they can tell how many how many you've shot based on this because you can't just go buy ammo unless you have a gun license now. So that surprised me that people are just willing to rent out guns and not care that the gun that you're getting back may have a body involved with it, that there may have been a murder involved with it. I learned that there are guns that are literally community guns that are hidden in certain parts of different communities and people that need to use it 
know where to go and know to go behind this dumpster. And if you move this part of the brick right here, it's loose and here's the gun and you can go use it and just put it back for the next person that wants to use it. So there are neighborhoods, and we heard this from a gentleman uh, who's currently remanded on gun charges. There are neighborhoods in certain street corners where you can just walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you have something? And they're like, yeah, just bring it back. And you may not even be good friends with them, but they know where you live. So they know you'll bring them back with their gun. That really surprised me. When you talk to people in these communities, what do they say needs to be done to get a handle on this problem? Because, you know, we know these communities, these are, are often racialized communities, often poor communities. More policing is probably not the easiest answer there. So, you know, what needs to happen? Everybody that I spoke with says that has to be a long game solution. So I was very surprised to find out that, for example, Evelyn Fox, uh, her son was murdered. His killer's never been found. Her son had no gang affiliations. Uh, police know he was not the intended target. It, he, he died because of a shot into a crowd. And I was really surprised to hear that she doesn't believe a gun ban or a handgun ban will solve anything because they're not looking for Band-Aid solutions. The people in these communities are, are largely looking for long-term investments. So everybody I spoke with said the biggest solution is to put more resources into grassroots community organizations that can help deter youth from ever getting into this lifestyle, to have more community um, centers and activities for youth. Marcel Wilson, he was the former gang leader, he says that he only started down this path on reflection after they closed down the basketball courts in the community housing project that he lived in. And that's when all of the kids had nothing to do. And all of a sudden, it became cooler to look up to the 17-year-old that was doing bad things. And the same thing with Dwayne Beckford, who's currently remanded on gun charges. He said there was absolutely nothing for him to do when he turned 12 or 13. And so he started going down this path. And so everybody says it's not as simple as putting a basketball court or, you know, a skate park. But that's a really big solution is to make sure that youth have other things that they can be involved in. So hanging out on a street corner and selling, you know, drugs doesn't seem that cool. And having more youth, more opportunity for youth employment because then they have a job. And so selling drugs again or being involved in that lifestyle isn't that cool because you can do all of these things and succeed. So they are really calling for better investment, better housing, better resources for education and better activities for youth in these um, marginalized communities and in specific postal codes to have access to. When you compare uh, what they're asking for to what you hear about solutions from politicians or from the police, how do the two stack up? I don't want to say that they're exactly opposite, but they're not the same. So the provincial and the federal governments have invested a lot of money in gang deterrence and uh, youth diversion programs. But when you look at it, the majority of that money is still going towards policing initiatives. It's not going towards um, new recreation centers that are open later and that have things that kids actually want to do, like basketball, like skate parks, like, um, you know, maybe tennis. They don't have things that kids are actually wanting to do. 
a gun ban, as every person I spoke with has said, is not really going to have an impact, not, not on street violence, because the people that are lawful gun owners aren't contributing to the street violence. You have to go through so many police checks and character references. And I'm going through the process right now as part of this film. And I started the process eight months ago and I still don't have a license. So it's not those individuals that are necessarily committing the crimes, but that seems to be where a lot of the government's focus has been, is on making it a little bit difficult or more difficult to get a gun, you know, banning guns that aren't used or very rarely used in gun and street violence, but make us all feel a little bit safer. Because I admit, you know, we we heard about um, the tragedy, well, we saw the tragedy last year in Nova Scotia, and we all felt like, oh, no, we don't need guns. And, you know, it's that knee-jerk reaction that fewer guns on the streets will, will make us safe, but criminals don't adhere to laws. No, no gangster or, and no potential murderer is going to go, oh, well, I'm driving from, from Toronto to Mississauga. Mississauga bans guns, so I better leave my handgun in Toronto because that's, if you have a handgun illegally and you're going to kill somebody, a ban is not, not going to stop you. But potentially, if, if that person had had different opportunities in life, they may not have made those choices. Marcel explained it and he says it so poignantly when he says a gangster is not made, we're created. And they're created because of lack of opportunities. Christina, thank you so much for this. I can't wait to watch the documentary tonight. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you for for the opportunity to share some of it with you. Christina Howeran of City News. You can find The Gun Chase on City TV tonight, Tuesday, April 27th, and afterwards at citynews.ca. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn.com. You can talk to us anytime via email, the Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And please do tell your friends about this show, send them a link. Any podcast player will work. If you can, please rate us and review us. We love to hear what you have to say. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.